Hello, and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Todd, and I'm here today with Percy. Hello. And Nick. Hello, hello, hello. Today we're going to be talking about violence and tabletop gaming and theater. This discussion is partially inspired by Kids on Bikes' fraught combat system, by which we mean to say the intentional lack thereof with the plea to the players not to engage in violence. This led the three of us to the discussion you're about to hear and ideas we had about how violence is employed in theater and tabletop role-playing games. So to start, what do we mean by violence? So part of our research for this uh, for this episode was an article about violence in American theater and how it has evolved by Russell Vandenbroek. And he offers sort of two categories of what violence might mean that he's applying really specifically to the context of like onstage violence, but I think apply fairly universally. Um, so he talks about direct slash behavioral violence, which is like actions intended to harm other people, um, the infliction of physical injury, uh, the use of harmful or destructive physical force against something. Um, but he also talks about structural and cultural violence, meaning um, like inequalities built into the social system, aspects of culture that legitimize director behavioral violence, violence that doesn't necessarily directly harm another person, but enables harm to be done to them. Yeah. So those are sort of two, I think, useful definitions of what we might mean when we use the word violence. And within this theatrical mode, we're talking about both like violence that you might see directly, um, as Vandenbroek uh, describes, like someone hitting someone else, a sword fight, a, a beheading, a someone putting out Lear's eyes, et cetera, or the the structural violence um, that is done to people both in ways that like dehuman dehumanizes them, um, ways that lead to like children being without food or drink because of like structural violence being done to people. Um, so like that kind of stuff is sort of what we're looking at. I also think it's useful to sort of name explicitly what kids on bikes means when the creators talk about violence in the game. Um, so I'm just going to read from from the handbook, which says in this game, violence should never be without consequence rather than trading blow after blow. Stat rolls and applicable skill rolls should determine the outcome of a fight before it starts. Players in the GM should then narrate the outcome. So it's very much not about depleting other people's hit points it's very it's more so about who gets to narrate the fight who decides what happens uh and it's also really careful to remind players that um none of you are immortal far from it um compared to the forces you will probably come into contact with you're exceptionally fragile a well-aimed bullet from a government agent the quick flick of a monster's jaws or a telekinetic character could end things in a moment so this is a situation in which death is very much on the table the stakes are extremely extremely high um, and you should not enter a combat situation lightly, which I think is very different from a lot of other tabletop role-playing games that you that you encounter where it's sort of violence is, I think, abstracted from the actual physical reality of like doing violence to another person. Mm -hmm. Well, and um, like in theater, uh, particularly like Greek and Roman theater or even Elizabethan theater, like there is violence that is shown on stage. Um, I feel like this happens less in more modern contemporary plays, but that's not true of everything. I mean, look at Wolf Crush, which we'll talk about in detail in a couple episodes, um, <laughs> like a very violent show. And there's there's a question about like why in in games or in theater, in entertainment, um, do we as a species enjoy violence? Like people love 
their crime procedurals on TV. Like that is a staple. If there is a dead body in the first five minutes, people are probably going to watch. Um, and some of the people that we'll be talking about later um, theorize that this is either due to some like primal bloodlust, which like maybe, I don't know. Um, and some other people theorize it as like, a way to explore things that we know are like possible to happen to us without having to actually go through them ourselves. And like, is this why people rubberneck on the highway as they go past a, a car crash, knowing in their brain that like that could be me and currently is not. Um, and like what that means as humans to experience those things. Yeah. I think there's a question about like, is violence depicted in media writ large some kind of catharsis some kind of cathartic experience of like yeah this could happen to me but it isn't or you know what what might this be like if it were to happen to me because i think violence also accompanies a lot of things that we just don't know like if you see somebody get killed on stage that is a way to think about like oh what might happen if i were to die without actually experiencing that although that may be a little bit uh exaggerated and a little bit overblown but <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's also an element that we shouldn't ignore uh, the the possibility of violence as sort of the simplest and in some ways like cleanest way of doing conflict um, or, you know, the, the kind of idea of agonistic struggle between two sides is at its or between multiple sides is at its simplest in a like physical, particularly a like physical direct violence confrontation where you know if, if one person stabs another and then the stabby dies then it's like very clear who's who's won that conflict and we have all of the you know satisfaction of like setup and drama and resolution in a very small simple arc that we all <laughs> pretty much understand what it was however else we feel about it yeah, I think that leads interestingly into another sort of facet, which is I think like if you look at the history of particularly I think in America, but I would also wager in a lot of other places as well, that like violence is sort of at the core of like many moral panics that have happened. Um, like I think there's like has been since the inception of video games, like a lot of like anxiety about like is this making our children more violent like what does this mean what is the effect of like witnessing violence on the people who are consuming it and that's like a thing that i think is very fraught and complex that we that we love to panic about um culturally but i think there is yeah like a moral element to it as well i also think there's a because this is an argument that like as someone who was born in the late 80s and has been playing video games for most of my life, um, who has come up against this moral panic a number of times. I also think the conversation is more fraught because like when I was starting playing video games, um, we were talking like 16 bit or 32 bit graphics um, where like the remove from reality is very easy and very clear. Um, and now like anyone with uh, a certain computer processor can access like very realistic lifelike graphics um, to go through some things that are similarly violent or not violent, um, depending on what. And I think like that is an interesting thing in terms of like representation. And maybe there's something in there about how like 
violence is represented on stage sometimes in like very realistic and very abstracted ways. Um, and the way that people respond to those things, um, when like the violence and the shock is the point, um, and when like the implication of violence is the point, um, and how that feels. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's a question of like desensitization that like, Mm -hmm. like I think this conversation, yeah, is probably different was probably a different one to have before like call of duty or other such games became so popular and ubiquitous. Um, because I think like I've noticed this in myself and I think a lot of other people my age and younger, not that we're that different in age, but, um, are wow, pretty, Percy. Like, <laughs> listen, um, are pretty desensitized to, to, but like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like this onerous, scary thing to me in like a visceral mm-hmm. sense. Like I, I think I'm so used to absorbing it in other things that I don't necessarily like, like it, in some ways it doesn't feel real until it is real. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Which is like weird and like interesting. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to hear more about representing violence on stage specifically and violence in theater. One of the things about, so like in, as we've said, um, like in classical theater, Violence was depicted differently. Um, Often in Greek and Roman theater, you would have a messenger come on stage and like relay that some violence had taken place, whether that was a battle or an assassination or something like that. Um, Sometimes you might see the actors like appear behind the messenger in tableau um, to show this like horrifying thing. But like the violence was usually not simulated. Um, Or if anything, you have the the notorious like hang handkerchief spotted with blood yeah um and then as you move towards more modern times if you're looking at like the elizabethan or jacobian drama um you have active sword fights you have beheadings you have people putting other people's eyes out um and then up to the modern day um i mean even looking back as recently as like sarah kane and the in your face theater of the late 90s um there was this like hyperviolence um that you would see in some shows but i would argue that it has decreased dramatically from what you would see like the amount of sword fights in a typical shakespearean drama for instance um is like much higher than the amount of like violence that you would typically see in a play if you just like grabbed a play out of a hat that was on stage today and part of me wonders if this is coming from a because like our lives are less violent um, than people who lived in like the 1600s um, or the 400s. Um, like while this was something that I don't think this was in the Vandenbroek. I think this was in a different article I was reading. I'll try to put it in the show notes. Um, but that like while it is hard to believe, um, given how much strife there is in the world right now and how like very bad things are still happening, even in Western societies, like blah, 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 that we think of as like, you know, very peaceful, whatever. Um, Like despite state sanctioned violence in America, um, we are as a species living in like the most peaceful time that we as a species have ever lived in. Um, And I wonder if that is reflected in our drama, just because like violence is both kind of distant for most people. Um, and because we don't all carry swords on ourselves the way that we used to back in the day. 
Well, and that's the uh, the thing that Sarah Rule sort of identifies as like her reasoning for maybe why we don't see violence portrayed on stage in the same way. Um, she writes in 100 essays, I don't have time to write on umbrellas, sword fights, parades and dogs, fire alarms, children and theater. Um, she She writes about how we don't see sword fights on stage anymore and describes this sort of primal bloodlust that we have as audience members, which debatable. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, since we don't carry swords anymore, we don't see sword fights on stage, but since we still want something like a sword fight and gunfights are pretty boring to look at them on stage, uh, we've instead come to like a verbal tete-a-tete or like an onstage argument. Although I would argue that that comes less from like gunfights are not satisfying on stage and more about a shift from interest culturally in direct violence from one person to another person and more of an interest in the kind of structural cultural violence that Vandenberg talks about. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think that is the thing that we are, that we are more afraid of um, as opposed to like somebody throwing down a gauntlet and challenging us to a duel in the street. Although I don't, I don't know for sure that that was even ever a thing that happened (laughs) in day-to-day life. (laughs) Probably not in, in day-to-day life. It did, it did happen (laughs) to some people. I think, I don't know, I, I, I do think you're right, Percy, that it is probably in part that violence is, uh, is such a smaller part of most of our lives, at least certainly most of our lives um, in the United States, although it is still pervasive in a lot of ways, including in the U.S. But that kind of direct interpersonal violence is thankfully rarer than it was in the 17th century. Um, mm-hmm. And that is, uh, Todd, you mentioned, the, that's mentioned in the Vanderbrook article. He's drawing on the work of um, Steven Pinker, mm-hmm. uh, who's a Harvard sociologist, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, but who has published about the basically the 21st century being the most peaceful time for human existence as a, on a global scale as a species. Um But, you know, one of the things I think Rule gets right in that book is that violence can be used to tell a story and the types of violence that we, particularly the types of interpersonal violence that exist in our world right now are usually not um, as theatrically interesting because I think for instance about gunfights, like Sarah Rule's right that they're not that they aren't very interesting on stage, but that doesn't mean that they're not interesting in any narrative form. You see them all all the time in film, and that's because film lends itself to what's really, you know, what we have discovered in gunfights to be narratively interesting, which is, you know, the psychology and the oh, yeah. and the interiority, which you just can't do in theater because you can't do like the close up on the gunslinger's eyes as he like <laughs> squints at the person he's going to try to shoot, which is where all the drama in like a classical Western film comes from. Mm -hmm. It's not actually the shooting itself. Usually it's in the, in the psychic conflict. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. She, she talks about how like the, the screen has much more handily captured and dramatized the gunfight, but that on stage it's both like, hard to like if two people pull guns on each other on stage and you hear the gunshot sound effect go off which is normally going to go through speakers and not be from like a blank that is fired on stage it is very hard to deduce um whomst has pulled first uh 
whether they have hit their mark. Um, whereas like in in the theatrical space of a sword fight, um, like the sound is coming from the clanging of the blades. Um, it's not a sound uh, cue that has been loaded up. Um, and so like it is a much clearer storytelling device for the theater um, to do something more akin to a sword fight. Uh, yeah. than it is to do something like a gunfight. Well, and like the only, maybe the only theatrical gunfight I think you could argue is interesting is the one at the end of Hamilton. And that's only interesting because there is like a musical's worth of buildup and a lot of scaffolding in terms of song and lighting and all of these other things that are like the gunfight itself is not inherently interesting. You just spent two hours investing yourself in what you know is going to happen. Well, and they do a close up. They literally freeze yeah. the gunfight like with the bullet in the air and do a whole soliloquy exploring the, the interiority. Yeah. Yeah. Psychology yeah. while the bullet is flying. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they just, they figure it's a, it's a good moment, but they just figured out a way to do that thing on stage with the like conventions of, of musical theater. Um, I do wonder if this also, you know, is partly to do if, if violence on stage is always, I, I'm dubious of the idea that it's ever like violence for violence sake, a, a sort of bloodlust thing, because I think one reason that I I wonder this is speaking, speaking from a place of I, uh, I, I wonder whether the reduction of violence on stage has to do with the fact that violence is usually um not symbolic exactly, but I feel like violence on stage is very often pointing to something else, either a larger system of violence or a different con or or a larger conflict or something like that. And with the 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 story of violence on stage is for the most part also the story of kind of increasingly faithful mimetic violence on stage. Yeah. And the more like just from a technical perspective, I feel like the more accurately the violence gets depicted, the harder it is to use it as a symbol because it be- because it feels so much more real. And real violence is very often not symbolic. Um, you know, it is not. Uh, which is not. I'm not talking about symbolic violence, which is a different thing. I'm saying you know. Actual violence as experienced by lived people is arbitrary and cruel and devastating, not aesthetic. I guess I'll put it that way. Not a symbol. Well, and I think there's been like a push in recent years. I think the like the tide of theater very generally has been moving towards more realistic depictions of things on stage. And it's a really, really hard to depict violence realistically on stage because you have to find a way to do it that looks real, but doesn't actually hurt anyone. Um, Mm. And it's it's hard. It's hard to do that. Like it is it is an entire industry. And like there are very few stage fights that I have seen that looked like they were real, which is fine because I don't want anyone to get hurt. But also, like if the point of what you're doing is to like show violence that is scary and realistic, that's really difficult to achieve. But I also like thinking back to what the kids on bikes handbook says, like a violence against real people is like, <laughs> like we are a lot more fragile than the Jacobean sword fighters uh, and the Elizabethan sword fighters who are, who are trading lots of blows. Like I, 
in a in a theater environment that is like trying to feel real there's not a lot of leeway for like cool and elaborate violence because in reality like we as people are like not gonna have a long fight before we're done like we have two hit points if you want to translate it into those into those terms um so yeah so i think i think too like theater that is attempting to be realistic as opposed to like if you have a play that's about uh per todd's example vampire cowboys at that point realism's out the window you could do whatever you want (laughs) um yeah um the that note it was just about like the vampire cowboys uh theater company that does a lot of very fun for for those who don't know who the vampire cowboys are um who might listen to this podcast um they do a lot of very outlandish over the top um stylized uh very much influenced by like kung fu movies of the late 80s and 90s um sort of stuff which i find very fun and honestly a, a vampire cowboy show was why i wrote emily dickinson paranormal investigator because i said we can get weird on stage and people can buy into it and that can be fun. Yeah. Like as we've said on the podcast before, like I think the American theater is afraid of genre and is afraid of like outlandish or unrealistic or fantasy, sci-fi, Western, whatever inspired things um, in which, you know, gunfights or sword fights or whatever are welcome um, and, and don't have to conform to whatever our expectations of like, realistic depictions of things are Mm -hmm. um i think another question that this raises for me um that we've sort of been gesturing at is uh what is as as nick said a violence on stage is pointing at something else as opposed to just being like arbitrary everyday not arbitrary but you know everyday experience of violence um what values does putting violence on stage embody um and how is it sort of serving the the play that it's in yeah, I mean, I, even going back to like very the the roots of the kind of Western dramatic tradition, I feel like violence is often treated as both an instigator of problems and a potential solution to one. Sometimes in the same gesture, actually, I was going to say in uh, like Agamemnon, going back to ancient Greek theater, we don't see violence. Well, actually, I think there's. There, there are some good uh, arguments about whether the ancient Greeks actually never, quote unquote, put violence on stage because there's some evidence that they did in the like choral dance movements of of the plays. Um, but the the sort of grotesque violence, like putting out Gloucester's eyes in King Lear seems not to have happened. But in Agamemnon, when spoiler alert, uh, when Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon, <laughs> Damn it. Uh, I know. Spoiled a 2,500 year old play. Um, uh, But when Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon, you know, she takes him inside in behind the skinny that is uh, representing his house. And then she and then we hear the like the murder happen off stage. We hear Agamemnon's cries. But what, what isn't obvious reading the script is that the way the theater uh, of Dionysus and Athens is set up is that that murder when Agamemnon is led into his house uh, what would have been immediately obvious to the people watching it at the time is that he is led kind of through the back of the theater towards the place where the sacrificial altar one of the sacrificial altars 
on the Acropolis is located. So Agamemnon gets figured as a sacrifice in this act of violence that is both atonement for the sins that he's already done and um, launching this cycle of violence that is going to be the the entire Oresteia. So yeah, that's, I, I think, one way that violence is... We have a very complex relationship to it because we want those clean endings of like Agamemnon did a bad thing. He's going to he's going to be punished for it. And also there's this recognition that creates these cyclical spirals of violence in a lot of Western literature. Well, and the Oresteia specifically is pointing toward like an eye for an eye makes the world blind. Like this murder must be revenged with another murder, which must be revenged with another murder until they're like, we're just going to keep killing each other forever. Maybe we should have, I don't know, a court um, <laughs> is like the kind of, I think in our our view is a kind of like boring end to this idea of revenge. But like at the time was like, no, this is, not how things have been done up until this point, and perhaps we wouldn't keep killing each other if we found a different way to, like, mitigate violence. I mean, to a certain extent, I feel like this is the question that we litigate over and over again in the entire, like, in the history of, I don't know, I think a lot of the, a lot of the themes of that are embedded in, for example, The Last of Us 2. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Um, yeah, but the the thing that I was actually going to say is I'd bringing into one of Todd's favorite subjects uh, is that I also think part of this is like not only sort of pointing out systemic violence or structural violence or like uh, arguing that we should stop doing X or Y thing is that I also think to a certain extent, like so you see violence on stage intended to implicate the audience, which I think is a, is a, is an interesting use of it. Um, I can't necessarily think of like a very firm and solid good example from a play at this moment in time. But I think very frequently when you see violence on stage, you think about like either the audience is put in the position of like, Oh, would you have done something about this? Or, you know, like I think we are, we are put in a position to like think about how we might be complicit in the systems that are doing this violence or how we might not intervene in the systems that are, that are doing this violence. I mean, I would say very clearly like slave play does this with its Mm -hmm. audience Yes, absolutely. Um, in the Broadway run, the the mirrored uh, drops that fly in, um, particularly when one of the characters is talking about like uh, imagining their ancestors looking on them in this like moment of strife, and these mirrors are illuminated so that we, the audience, are like staring each other in the face around this situation and surround these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, where violence is about to happen and we know violence is about to happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. Thank you, Todd. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think violence functions a lot as a, as a way to sort of point out our complicity or to sort of invite us to engage in the thing that the play is, is talking about. So it's sort of a, a means to some kind of real life political end. Um, and I say, I mean, political with like a lowercase p. Um, well, and I'm also thinking about, um, I know, Nick, you were saying earlier that you don't feel like there's a lot of like violence for the sake of violence. Um, and I feel like the violence in like a blasted by Sarah Kane 
is this like over the top desensitization to violence in response to the like violent headlines of our world. Um, like she was writing that in response to the crisis in Bosnia, I believe. I think um, that's right. Yeah. And like that play is harrowing to see or to read. I have done both. Um, and it's just like a lot. Um, and by the time you come out of it and like trigger warnings, this, this play is fucked up. Um, but like when you come out of it and a soldier like eating the corpse of a child that was left under some floorboards is like not the worst thing you just saw. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of what Sarah Kane was trying to do is like, there's all of this violence and it just adds up and adds up and adds up. And there's a point where your brain just like shuts off to it. Like there's just, there is too much. And what can we do? And some of this is like, and I don't know all of the theories behind the in your face movement um, and like what they were attempting to achieve. Um, but I think some of it is looking at the, the ways our world seems very violent and is very violent and the way that that's just like if you put a chiron under that and like showed all of those images on the nightly news at 9 p.m that is an okay thing to do and if you remove the trappings of a news person from it and show it before 10 o'clock at night on tv like the fcc will have you off the air mm -hmm. and i think that's wild yeah Yes, <laughs> I thought I had a thought and then I didn't <laughs> uh, other than correct. Um, but I think I think the idea of sort of violence for the sake of violence brings us rather neatly into thinking about violence in tabletop games, because I think our discourse around them is a lot different. Um, the first thing that I think of related to violence for the sake of violence um, when you think about violence in tabletop games is like the murder hobo trope, um, which if you're unfamiliar is like. A D and D party of adventurers who of adventurers who goes to every town and like doesn't have a home and just kills everybody there and like takes all their stuff and then goes to the next town and murders everybody there. Like it's this sort of exaggerated, but also like a thing that really happens, you know, uh, stereotype within Dungeons and Dragons because that is a game where like the ability to do violence is the thing that you are is you, that everybody is best at is everybody is best equipped to do. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And the game is set up to reward you for doing that to other people because it gives you experience. It gives you magic items, gives you money. Um, so like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't that be the way that you play the game? It's very important to distinguish the murder hobo from the classic expected D&D player who is simply a colonialist. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, like <laughs> I in researching for this episode, part of like I read a bunch of different people's frameworks about like why violence in RPGs. And they were talking about both like pen and paper, um, but also video games and stuff like that that have grown from the same tradition. And like some of it is the root of this is war gaming. And so that was like clearly the model. Um, it also sets up like stakes, like there needs to be challenge in games for people to feel that there is something to strive against um, and to overcome. And like sometimes uh, that could happen in a puzzle game, whether that's like, I don't know, you could play Mahjong and like Mahjong 
is a difficult game that you need to overcome. Um, and other times it's like Super Mario and like there's there's these weird Goombas and they're going to walk toward you and they're going to hurt you if they touch you. Um, so you either need to avoid them or you need to stop them. Um, and then like in in more recent stuff, um, it's it's enemies that are attacking you or stopping your way or guards or whatever. And in the case of many tabletop role-playing games, um, it is just about any non-player character that you could encounter could do violence to you. Well, and because tabletop games situate, like role-playing games situate you as the hero, so by default, anybody who is trying to stop you from doing the thing that you want to do is a villain. And therefore, because villains are bad and they're stopping the hero from achieving their objective, like you you have the right almost, I think, to do to do violence to them, I think is like the the situation that it sets up, because I think a lot of role playing games have this very sort of black and white morality to them. Like you are right and everything that doesn't agree with you is wrong. Thus. It's totally cool. Um, and I think there is like a movement for games that sort of want to like gray that out a little bit more or explore this idea with some more nuance or who, or in which like, for example, like this was a big discourse around The Last of Us and The Last of Us 2. Um, mm-hmm. Like what happens when you're playing somebody who is like only arguably the protagonist? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting about The Last of Us is The Last of Us is telling a story in which the player has very little input. Um, into like how the story progresses, um, which is very, it's kind of different from how a lot of games are built these days. Like it is, it is a thought that agency and player choice are like integral to storytelling. Um, this actually came up in one of the essays I was reading about Mass Effect, mm-hmm. um, and how the Mass Effect series was like all about player choice, and then at the end of the series, player choice like only affects the color of the way the world blows up in the initial launch um and like all of your choices actually meant nothing like the the climax was the climax was the climax which was interesting um but with the last of us part two i feel like you the player are expected to be in a different headspace than the character is almost the whole time like regardless of which player your character your which character you're playing as and i think in the in the moments when Ellie and Abby are put up against one another. Um, that is like such a harrowing experience for you, the player, because you have played as both of these people. You sympathize with both of their plights. And so like neither can be the villain for you mm-hmm. um, because you have been forced to walk in their shoes to sympathize with them. Uh, and so like those I know for me, those fights were the most harrowing experiences in the whole game because I knew that I had to proceed. That is what the game wanted me to do. And so I needed to like do violence to a character that I cared deeply for, um, which was like much more awful than the crazy zombie amalgamation that you find in the basement of the hospital in that case, Ugh. which was also horrifying, but, but very, like, yeah, not emotionally horrifying, like not exactly. emotionally taxing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- I think, I think this sort of gets at an idea that the Vandenberg article talked about, which is this sort of idea that like, we're not necessarily, we might not be interested in violent entertainment because we have some kind of innate, inherent violent nature or some kind of, as Sarah Rule says, primal bloodlust. But in fact, because like it taps into our ideas of morality and justice and it invites us to think about those because I think those are very foundational 
mm-hmm. to the way that all of us interact with the world um, and what we understand to be right and what we understand to be wrong. But yeah, I think the la- that observation about The Last of Us also leads us neatly into sort of the question of um, in a tabletop game, the rule, what the rules are about is what the game is about. Um, so if your game like Dungeons and Dragons has mostly rules about how to kill things, your game is about killing things, which is, you know, f- fine, but that's what, that's what it's about. And something like a, an anecdote that I wanted to share that I thought was funny. Um, I was listening to a game of a game called the price of coal, which is about the, um, the coal wars in Appalachia, uh, in that one specific place in West Virginia, the name of which I forget, but there's this like large labor conflict. Um, and they were playing a game that is, that is about that on the one shot podcast. And there is a point where one of the players was like, Oh, I want to, I want to hit some, I want to hit that guy. Um, and they were, they did like a whole bit about like, Oh, like, you know, roll for initiative, like do Italians get dark vision as a racial trait, like blah, blah, blah. But it was a funny moment of like, Oh, how like in a game that doesn't have a framework for combat, what happens when you want to do violence to somebody Mm. (laughs) when it's not explicit in the rules that like how, how you go about doing that. And it was interesting to me because I realized like, oh, I've like taken for granted that that's like a thing that exists in games because my entry point to tabletop games is Dungeons and Dragons. So I was like, oh shit, like I've, (laughs) this is, this is how I've defined in my brain what a game is. And that's actually, yeah, not, not necessarily it. Yeah. I think it's, um, I think you're really right, uh, Percy, that it it does have some, our, our fascination with violence does have something to do with the desire for like justice. I'm totally blanking on the name of this person right now, but I was reading a book um, by a person named Mickey Kendall recently uh, titled Spinning Threads of Radical Aliveness, which is exactly as like exactly as much a mix of things as the title of the book makes it sound. Um, But uh, she was talking about a, a, a study in that book that did actually find that many violent crimes have been committed out of some sense misplaced or not of um, of injustice, you know, whether that is, you know, it's a lashing out at what somebody perceives to be an unjust world um, or something or something else. Um, that's that's the root of a lot of violence. And I, I always think about early in the early in the Trump presidency, Jessica Price, uh, who's a game designer, wrote on Twitter that the biggest fantasy in Dungeons and Dragons isn't that, uh, you know, there are dragons and magic. It's that evil is easy to identify and best confronted with like direct, straightforward action. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is a lot of the that's that's a lot of the fantasy and a lot of the appeal of a game like Dungeons and Dragons is that like, yeah, we can like know that that guy, those guys, those things are bad and we can just go out and like triumph over them in direct conflict and that will be okay and uncomplicated. Yeah. I don't know. There's some for the listeners. Todd is making a face. (laughs) (laughs) Several, several faces. I do think that there's something because I have some, a lot of the same, uh, you know, suppositions that Percy had. Um, and like in reading the kids on bikes manual where it was like, we really don't want to build stuff for this because it's like hard and bad. Not, not that 
like yes violence is bad but not that like <laughs> building a system for figuring out how violence works is like an inherently bad thing yeah but that like this shouldn't be your first response like we want to give you other tools to do this other tools to explore this other ways to work around these things um and some of that i think comes from like the genre that this is built on which is very like goonies and stranger things and stuff like that where like kids are using their wiles and a wrist rocket um to like hit a security camera and not like to attack all of the men in black suits. Yeah. Like it, it also feels bad in this specific context to be like, you're most likely playing as like literally a kid. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's like figure out how we could like, here's the rules for shotguns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that doesn't feel great, but also, um, I'm sorry, carry on. Well, and I feel like this is the, the first game that we have played that is like the closest to our times and circumstances like apocalypse world assumes a fraught world um paranoia is a whole different kind of fraught but is like a comedic (laughs) fraught um but actually pretty close to our lived reality in some ways that's another (laughs) podcast um but this is why this like kids on bikes rules kind of flipped a switch for me to think about like how is violence being employed in the games that we play and like what does that say or not say um both about like what the game is trying to do um like i think the murder hobo quality of dungeons and dragons games is like a logical end step for the rules as written um if combat gets you loot if combat gets you experience why would you not proceed and if most of your rules are about how to do combat um why would you not use combat at any time to try to get the things that you need or want Mm -hmm. um even if that's not the best course of action for your character to make from either like a logistical or even in their own best interests sort of situation messing with the captain of the guard in the middle of a large city would normally get you thrown in jail but because you have plot armor as the hero of your story and because you are able to do lots of damage and npcs aren't built to withstand a lot of damage on the fly um like why wouldn't you do those things if you wanted to um and it made me think about like what games are pushing back against that so not just like we don't really want to build rules for this and kids on bikes but i know that um the wild behind the wild beyond the Witchlight um new DD module um sets out to be a module with no combat which i think is interesting like how do you war game with no war yeah i think so much embedded in that (laughs) um and i imagine there's other games like i know that there are other games but i imagine there's other games where like this isn't even a point of conflict like there just isn't war in those games or like um I've been playing Deltarune lately, which is the sequel. It's the next game by Toby Fox, um, who created Undertale, um, which is specifically like a a video game that is where no one has to die. It's a role-playing game where no one has to die. Violence is always a choice, but you have to choose it. But there's also like a way around literally every conflict. Yeah, I I will say I find that 
going to give this a little preamble. Yeah. I'm a pretty pacifistic person and have mm-hmm. been for a long time. At the same time, I think it's important to keep in mind that violence actually in and of itself is more neutral than we generally give it credit for because, you know, violence is also uh, the violence of oppressed against oppressors is also violence. Mm-hmm. Um but is ethically ethically different from the inverse. So totally. I do find, you know, I, I I think in terms of theater, that's one reason I think that it is worth putting violence on stage. Mm-hmm. And in games, I do find that element of choice the more interesting than the games that just say like, don't do this, or like, we we're not giving this any support. One of the most interesting and there is wander home which is specifically a game that's like there was a war but it's done there's yeah. no violence here anymore yeah and it then, explicitly says yeah yeah there's no violence here anymore period <laughs> no questions but then what it does is give you a playbook called the veteran where uh the veterans kind of defining features it's like like it's written between the lines, but clearly like you fought in whatever this war was and it kind of fucked you up. Um, and that's like, and you have a sword and your sword must never be drawn again. De- describe your sword, define your sword, blah, blah. You never, you have to never touch it again. And then on the list of things you can always do. The last thing you can always do is draw your sword and immediately kill the person in front of you. If you do this, you have to like retire this character and create a new character. You can't play them any, any longer. Oh, sure. So that's like, to me, that's a fascinating and like very clearly political bit of design by Jay Dragon to say there is no violence here, but also violence is always an option. Mm-hmm. Mm. It like it's just going to carry consequences that are going to be enormous uh, and that you may not be prepared to deal with. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Like, what I find interesting about Undertale, jumping back to that for a second, is that it's set up like a classical RPG. You get into uh, random encounters with enemies, sometimes bosses, and you can, like, attack people or defend, or um, you can act. um, And act, like, the choice to act uh, has different options based on what you're fighting or encountered with. um, And in... In Undertale, sometimes that's like flirting with someone and sometimes it's complimenting their hair. And then you can like choose to spare someone um, who you have like convinced not to fight, Um, which I think is interesting. Just like as a as a mechanic, I think it is interesting that like all of these combats can be gotten through with just talking to someone. Um, And Toby Fox, the, the creator, kind of like this. This is from a point of view because he's played a lot of games uh, like Dungeons and Dragons or Mass Effect or whatever, where like violence is the only option all the time. Um, and he was wondering like, are there ways that we can teach nonviolence? Like, are there ways that our games can have nonviolence in them um, as a viable option that is interesting? Um, and the whole crux of Undertale kind of like throws traditional RPGs on their head. So like if you go through and you don't do any violence in a combat encounter, um, you don't get any experience, you don't level up. 
about halfway through the game, you find, or maybe it's at the end of the game, um, you find that what you thought were experience points are actually execution points, and that your level LV is your level of violence. Uh. Um, and so like that goes up the more that those things happen. And there's there's a couple different endings in this game based on like, did you do a lot of violence? Did you do almost no violence? A bunch of like gray areas in between. And Alexandra, uh, I think it's Mueller, um, who wrote an article called, uh, sorry, her thesis um, was Undertale, Violence and Context. She was interested in like how we could teach pacifism um, through game design, but noted that like violence must be present in order to be critiqued, which I think is an interesting, like um, in Wander Home, as you're describing it, like there was violence and you could do violence, but like we can't just pretend that it doesn't exist. Like that's not a viable solution to, to stop violence from happening and instead like offering alternatives um i think is an interesting idea um for like how can we go about this differently yeah and i also think in addition to like explicitly just critiquing violence there's all like it also is just valuable to open up your own awareness of like oh this is my my expectation was that violence would be the solution to this and what does that mean and I'm now invited to reflect on on whatever that is. Yeah, whatever that is for me. And also, yeah, like when situations in situations where violence is not the first solution, it also means that when violence is does become your only solution for whatever reason, it means that much more. And it is suddenly like, oh, like the stakes are actually stakes and not just like, you know, they're they mean something like this matters in a way that it didn't perhaps before. Um mm-hmm. Sort of the final, like, I guess, question that I would posit um, is the is thinking both about violence in theater and violence in tabletop games. Um, this like the violence that we encounter happens in the space of our imaginations, um, whether it be because it is like rendered entirely fictional or because we're seeing, you know, people on stage who are acting and not actually hurting each other. Um, and the thing that I wonder is, you know, are these places that are that are safer to encounter and perhaps critique violence and the feelings related to it and sort of work through that and and understand it better yeah that's my question i I, i'll say i think certainly they are i also something about the way you just said it triggered something for me that i'm not sure that um this is a very unformed thought but um one of the things that russell vandenbroek is talking about is basically arguing that at least contemporary like current american theater is more interested in systemic and cultural violence than interpersonal violence and i'm suddenly thinking about the ways that earlier we talked about violence on stage implicating the audience and the 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 shift or or the distinction between the ways that violence can be explored on stage and the ways that violence can be explored in a game because it's the difference usually between watching violence as a witness and participating in violence fictional violence but still in a game you know games are mm-hmm. driven by choice uh, or the illusion of choice. <laughs> and uh, so I, I just wonder if perhaps that's actually some of that distinction is that in theater, as a as a witness, as a spectator, which is what most of us are to violence, 
uh, mm. these days. Theater offers a way to critique kind of those social systems, whereas games um, are go- naturally going to be much more driven toward interpersonal, exploring interpersonal violence because so many moments in game are about like you making individual choices, mm. which contribute to systems perhaps, but are not in themselves systems. Um, the way that you know theater can kind of present a system and enmesh you in it at the same time. No, I think there's something there about um, the division between the spectator and the performer. Mm-hmm. Um, that in uh, in a lot of and like there is a blurring of those lines, particularly in TTRPGs. But like, can you, how easy is it to disavow violence uh, in combat or like in, in first person choice um, versus how easy is it to disavow violence um, as spectator? Mm. Maybe is the thing that I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, Like it is easier to implicate the system than it is to implicate the actor. Yeah, well, and that's like what Augusto Boal was really getting at, because like the whole point of um, of theater of the oppressed and was he did he do forum theater? Is that what it's called? Yes. No. Yes. The whole point of forum theater and getting the, the, you know, taking the spectator and making them into the spect actor like he was literally like rehearse like it's rehearsal for the revolution. Mime throwing a Molotov cocktail so that when it comes time for you to throw a real Molotov cocktail at a government building, you've done it before and you know what you're doing you know like literally that's what he talks about like mm-hmm. um and then he got very and then he got very worried when the farmers were like okay we have some guns let's go and he was like Ooh, <laughs> i don't know Ooh. you know like i yeah I, th- I think you're right that there is a distinction between the participatory and and just watching something and i don't know what that like i don't know what that means and that can maybe be what we leave our you know the questioning note that we leave this episode on but yeah i think I think there is something there is something there and there is like a meaningful difference between doing and watching. I think a thing that I've noticed in a lot of theater in the past few years, particularly, is like there are efforts and productions that will try and cast the audience in a way that makes them in some way the doer or, you know, implicates them in a way that makes that puts them in the position of feeling like they've done something, you know, like a, a bad example that is lower stakes than what we're talking about is like going to a production of dance nation in which you via whatever is in the lobby are sort of cast as like a parent of one of these kids. And suddenly you have a stake in it that is different and you feel like, Oh, like I have some responsibility here. Oh, a better example is that I've heard about like productions of cabaret where you are sort of as the audience cast as like an audience of Nazis who are watching the performance. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and what does that do to your experience of it? If suddenly like you like, Oh, I like, there is a complicity here that I didn't know that I had until just now. Although that's not necessarily the note that I wanted to leave the episode on. (laughs) In conclusion, (laughs) do violence, but feel bad about it afterward. Well, no, that's not, that's not the actual conclusion. I, in in conclusion, um, in conclusion, I think we should be mindful about violence. Um, both in our, like, I think the next time you sit down, uh, to play whatever tabletop game you're playing, think about the violence that's in it and what it's saying mechanically and narratively. Um, and I think that's true of the next time you sit down and watch a play. Um, think about the violence that's here, both the direct violence, the interpersonal violence, and the structural violence. And like, what are those things trying to say? Hell yeah, Todd. Hey. 
on the fans now. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Horneck, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm the fans now. <laughs> hey.